Hello, comrades. Thank you for joining us for a special 9-11 Remembrance episode. While you might hear a lot of irony and jokes from other dirtbag leftists, here at the Antifada, we want to have a serious discussion about what happened. And we want to appreciate some of the remarkable actions of the NYPD and the FDNY and talk generally about how the city changed in those days and, and the years after that horrific event. So I'm joined today by fellow New Yorkers, Jamie and Sean, and uh, our guest is uh, one of the Anons behind Research and Destroy, and they just put out a, a really lovely commemorative pamphlet about the 9-11 first responders. So uh, say hello, Anon, and introduce yourself in Research and Destroy, if you'd like. Yeah, I'm a part of a zine collective called Research and Destroy in New York City. Uh, <laughs> Very topical uh, so for this episode. <laughs> yeah. So photocopy kind of DIY zines, usually about the police, um, specifically the NYPD. The most recent, yes, was the September 11th one that we put together in a very short period of time. So amid all the amid all the talk of never forgetting and the tributes and like the airplane, the fighter jets, you know, flying over us here, uh, we thought it would be nice to never forget the non-heroic actions of our first responders, specifically the NYPD, yeah. whom we hate. Can we, I mean, I've harped on this before, but can we just uh, talk about for a second the, the, like, how much we hate the term first responders because you're lumping in the fucking cops with people whose job is actually to help people, and I think that's bullshit. Word. I agree. Well, he and theoretically could have helped people, but uh, we'll, we'll see how they actually responded uh, first when we get to the zine. Uh, but before that, I thought it'd be nice if we just each of us talk a little bit about our 9-11 experiences. I could go first. Um, I was... Uh, yeah, you want to go first, Sean? Sure. I was staying in Philadelphia at the time, and my friend woke me up around 9.30, and there was like a little color TV, and we he had it turned on, and a plane had crashed into the building, and we're like, oh, shit. Uh, I know a lot of people in New York. A lot of my friends and family are there, and it was really scary. And the other plane hit, and I was convinced that uh, everybody was going to die. I was walking around the city like, oh, my God, the bomb's going to drop. The bomb's going to drop. Uh, but I called everybody in New York, and everybody I knew was safe. Uh, but, God, I sat there and watched the news for, like, days and days on end because there was very little information in the beginning. And uh, subsequent to that, of course, I watched the military-industrial complex and the media-industrial complex get together and drag us into two humongous uh deadly wars that killed millions of uh of uh middle easterners and central asians so that's my experience i will go next so yeah on september 11 2001 i was 16 and i was in high school and i remember very clearly i was in a meeting of the recycling club because i was a little do-gooder little do-gooder left liberal raised by my hippie mom to be a do-gooder and then they called us all into the cafeteria and I went to the cafeteria. We were all watching the news. Um, we were there. The second plane hit. And I remember thinking in my even even then, even teenage Jamie, that my primary emotion was just I was all consumed by fear of what our government was going to do as a result. And uh, turns out I was right. So there you go. Yeah, similar experience. I was in high school. It was actually my first week of high school. But I was uh, already a political nerd. And I already knew about Osama bin Laden from watching the History Channel or something like that. And so I told people, you know, I think this is the work of Osama bin Laden. And I think they're going to use this to uh, create some uh, awful offensive against the Middle East that will kill a lot of innocent people. Um, and I was totally right. Uh, and that's why I'm a podcaster now. <laughs> now, the most important thing about this episode is that Andy was right. Andy was right. How did you feel, uh, Anon? I was living in New York and I was in actually in lower Manhattan. I stayed up all night and then voted in the Democratic mayoral primary for Mark Green. Oh, my God. Lost handily to Bloomberg. Mm. Um, 
So I he would have won if it wasn't for 9/11 because Giuliani endorsed Bloomberg last minute. As everyone yeah, says, 9/11 was an inside job. Yeah, to, I mean, if Nader Bloomberg. hadn't run for president, I just it'd be an alternate universe. <laughs> okay, no. So I saw, I saw the. Uh, I, I didn't see the actual plane stuff hit. I just I stayed up so late and then just was up so late that I went to the polls to do my civic duty. Uh, that's whatever and. I woke to a number of uh, cell phone calls, and then I went to the rooftop of the building, which again was in Lower Manhattan. I could very clearly see um, the, the first tower fall. Wow. And I think yeah, I there, were, there were like yeah, and there were other people I believe on their own rooftops, you know, in like Manhattan, in low lying Manhattan, that area. And I think I, I think I. I Heard everyone kind of collectively say, "Oh shit!" Yeah. When the first building started yeah. coming down, because like it, it looked like some yeah. like Cessna hit it, you know. And then I was like, "Well, I'm gonna uh, I, I'm gonna go down there." I, I, it was some uh, weird impulse. I think mean, I, I was like reading too many zines at that point, like per zines, where it's like comic books, whatever. Or, like I'm like I'm supposed to go, you know, down there. I don't know why. Cause it's like an adventurer kind of thing or like the document just to see it. So I walked very quickly down there uh, for no particular reason other than I guess voyeurism. And the second, uh, of course, everyone's freaking out running away in their whatever business attire. And um, actually I was wearing a very stupid like Wong Kar Wai t-shirt from some design. It was very, I probably looked ridiculous. And I think I had like really long emo hair. <laughs> As was the fashion of the time. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, in retrospect, it was, it, it was probably a, a ridiculous sight. Anyway. So I, I walked and I think I, I believe I, I don't know. I was maybe like 10, 15 blocks when the second one came down. I think cause everyone realized the second one was going to come down. Holy shit. Well, everyone, Everyone outside the tower who could see the first tower fall knew. I guess all the firemen inside didn't know, although the cops also knew. Anyway, so, yeah, that collapsed. Everyone's freaking out. And uh, then and we all got covered in dust. So I inhaled a bunch of uh, dead body dust. Some dead, uh, you inhaled stop. dead cops. Yeah, and probably and like you know a couple thousand whatever like insurance lawyers at the top. Um, but I, I don't have nine eleven related illness. I don't think unless it's you know not it's psychological. Uh, yeah, but also I <laughs> um, I remember because I was on that stupid cell phone. You know they were kind of big, and my my family was trying to contact me, and the, of course the cell phone towers were not working. And then I remember, this was like after things were falling and like stuff, you could still hear explosions and people still thought like explosions are probably like parts of the building, like further collapsing. And everyone thought, you know, there were more bombs going off. And I distinctly remember, I forget a lot <laughs> about that, but I, I distinctly remember like being on my phone. And I think I picked up like a Con Ed, like hard hat that I found on the ground like to kind of look like, uh, you know, more important, like there was a reason I was headed toward <laughs> this plume of like toxic dust. You were committed at this point. Uh, yeah. But like, again, I was like, like some emo kid and I'm wearing like a Con Ed helmet. It was really, it was ridiculous. Listening to Saves the Day on your headphones. <laughs> yeah, I was, I think it was more like get up kids kind of, <laughs> yeah. Same day. Yeah, saves, saves the Day is kind of too literal for this. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> So, but eventually, um, some Hatsula, like some Hasidic guy, like Hasidic first responder was walking the opposite way. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you on your phone while buildings are exploding? And then after that, I was like, this, this Hasidic guy is probably right. So I put my <laughs> phone away and kind of slowly made my way back. Also, people started, like the news photographers were taking photos I did not really feel like being, being in those. Anyway, yeah, so I got home and I was like covered in dust. And of course, it took years before this 9-11 related illness 
uh, stuff came up. So I, I didn't realize that inhaling, well, first, yeah, I didn't think I was inhaling dead people. <laughs> Jeez. So, but, uh, just to get something I, straight, I don't, I don't, you're saying... You're saying that a, a Jewish person warned you about 9-11? He told you the towers were going to come down? <laughs> yes. Hmm. Just asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. He... <laughs> yes. The Hasidic plot. Then he, then he made me watch this like documentary, you know, Loose Change. The documentary was called me. A Bad Situationist by Sam Cedar. No, just kidding. Well, that's for the real heads out there. Continue. That's, that's also a very funny anti-Semitic joke that he made you watch Loose Change. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so I made my way out of that, out of that, like, impact zone where, you know, you, you couldn't see in front of yourself for a little bit. And also for uh, stupid reasons, you know, because I was a teen. I just started like collecting things I found on the ground. Holy shit! Including passports. You know, like, paper. <laughs> no, that like singed papers that you know could float, you know, far away. Passports, I think, just went down with with it. Yeah, I wasn't trying to commit identity, you know, theft. That was not my impulse on nine eleven. Of the hijackers. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't looking for uh, evidence. Uh, research anyway so i yeah i just was collecting stuff for no particular reason including i remember a gatorade bottle full of dust uh, you know i don't know why like for posterity and i still have all these things uh underneath my bed so like i've wow. probably i've been inhaling i've been inhaling that stuff for you know a couple couple decades it's like a, an old four loco you're just saving it for the right time to drink it <laughs> It's like, so I remember 9-11. I never forget 9-11. Yeah. It's just in my lungs um, so, nonstop. Damn, you so win. Why don't, why don't you talk a little bit? Yeah. yeah. I'm thinking I'm going to have to cut out our stories. Now. Like, <laughs> I was trying yeah, to get my school to recycle, and you were <laughs> inhaling dead bodies from the towers. I was 60 miles away watching on TV. You were inhaling bodies from the towers. So, a bit of housekeeping at the top of the episode, or wherever this ends up going. Um, you may remember uh, our 1917 patron drive from a while back, which was very successful. We sent out postcards. We got patrons. It was great. Um, but unfortunately, our patrons have taken a bit of a dip in recent months, or maybe the past year. I don't know. Um, it's happening to all podcasts. Don't worry, babe. It happens to all podcasts. Um, but we're trying to get back up there. Um, it, it's good that we didn't have any more than 1917. We want to keep like right at that right. number because, you know, as, as Shuja Hader pointed out, 1917 is always the goal. <laughs> a little up, you know, maybe 1920 would be fine. A little below 1915, but right at that sweet spot there. Yeah, that's that's what we want. Um, so... If you join uh, as a patron uh, in the next, I don't know, till we get to 1917, it's uh, it's the same deal as before, right, guys? We, we're going to send out some postcards and whatnot. Yeah, if you sign up for five dollars and uh, five dollars a month and give us your address, I will send you a postcard. If you sign up for five uh, ten dollars or more, I will send you a postcard and some stickers. And also, you can sign up for the entire year at once and get a 16% discount. So that's the whole year for something like $50. Hey, hey, hey. The Antifada prize packs are back. <laughs> back in a big way. Yes. You know, doing that, the zine, the, the NYPD first, excuse me, worst responders, Zine. I realized I was closer than you know the majority of of cops, first responders, the city, politicians, and the rest of the world. You were. I don't. Know, it's weird. Yeah. Like, like I like I personally like I I think I I can speak more authoritatively than uh, every single cop in the city. You know, except for a few dozen. So let's go through the piece then. Um... 
It begins with a um, kind of some some uh, primary source documents, right? Uh, from uh, the from the NYPD and the uh, and the N- N- and the FDNY, right? Or from the nine yeah, eleven commission? Out. Yeah, the nine eleven commission report. You know, like the foundational text that actually has a lot of good information that just needed to be selectively pruned or curated as as you guys say probably yeah so <laughs> what, what what would you say the main thrust is of including this information in the first part because i i will admit maybe it's my adhd brain but when i get that much pure information just washing over me it's hard for me to synthesize sometimes what i'm supposed to take from it right well looked at selectively it becomes clear that a reason that at least one reason that, um, you know, 300 some firefighters uh, died in the tower, tower collapse, um, including, you know, I think like a, a triple digits in the south tower, triple digits inside the tower that collapsed second. Um, and, and the NYPD, their aviation unit, uh, you know, they had helicopters hovering out there. They knew exactly what was going on and their communication, you know, their communication technology, you know, it was, it was very high end. Their budget uh, was much greater than the fire departments. The fire department communication system was kind of sort of collapsed. And, um, yeah, so <laughs> in short, NYPD helicopters saw the collapse and that communic- that information did not get communicated to the fire department or any of the firefighters inside the second tower, which you know took a, you know a little longer to collapse, and it could have saved a lot of lives. Um, if yeah, it's uh, almost well, like first, sorry. No, no. At first, the the radio communications, you know, the budget for the other first responders, you know, was as high as NYPDs and also the NYPD cops, uh, the, there are not many of them, but the ones that were in the towers, um, who were evacuating, uh, the second one before it collapsed. Uh, there was some confusion there and they did not communicate to firefighters who were still walking up the stairs, you know, thinking Mm. they were going to go up and save people. Um, in at least one case, like they just, they were walking down and just didn't even say anything to the, to the firefighters who were walking up with like, uh, you know, like 20, 30 pounds of gear Jeez. on them. Yeah. It's so, almost like uh, they yeah. should fucking move some money around and give more resources to the people whose job is actually to serve and protect. Like the part yeah, about so- how the fire department doesn't have their own helicopters was, was galling to me. Yeah. Like that's. That it's been that way, you know, forever for, I guess, decades. Yeah, and it's just a pissing match, more or less. Um, I mean, the fire department could use more money in the budget for that, but there's just kind of a more. It's I don't. It's not like state law, but there's more kind of like an unspoken agreement or or forced agreement that only the NYPD will have helicopters in New York City and they'll control the airspace. Um, Completely. And after 9-11, you know, they instituted a rule where, okay, every time they go up and there's some kind of uh, emergency that requires the fire department, they'll uh, call, you know, a fire department official, you know, wait for them to get to the to the the Floyd Bennett airfield and then they'll go up uh, together. Um, But uh, meanwhile, NYPD has access to, you know, (laughs) every single camera in the city including media, you know, news cameras, news helicams. Yeah, so the thrust of that is that NYPD had a lot of information that could have saved, you know, many, many uh, first responder lives that were not their own. And the 9-11 Commission report accurately uh, covered that, although they kind of said, oh, it was communication error. That's how it came out in the media. It's like, oh, there are communication failures. Or there was there was personal rivalry. There was between the departments, but I mean, but still, they probably the NYPD could have tried tried a bit harder 
to save, you know, like, like, uh, hundreds, hundreds of firefighters during that day. One more reason not to lump them together as first responders, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, also- the next part of the scene, the, the rest of the zine goes into a lot of this continued rivalry between the NYPD and the FDNY, between both of them and the construction workers who are doing the excavation work in the pit, and then later between the NYPD and the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is a really interesting part. So uh, the zine covers a lot of stuff, but I definitely wanted to get to the second part, which is about the the looting at, of the um, fallen World Trade Center. Uh, this like is a little, from a little siren called. goes off every time we say the word looting on this show. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, it's not... Uh, I'll, I'll read this part because it's really fascinating, um, their conclusion. It's from a book called uh, American Ground Unbuilding the World Trade Center by William uh, Langevisha. Um And this is from part three, The Dance of the Dinosaurs. It sounds like a pretty good book. Um, but do you, do you want to... I'm, I'm going to read just a paragraph from this, uh, but do you want to say anything before I do that? Uh, this is uh, one of <laughs> one of our times, like, leading journalists who writes very plainly and openly and doesn't give a shit about uh, the honor of all these different tribes of first responders, quote-unquote. It's a trustworthy source, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. More trustworthy than you know, every, any press release from the city. Or any yeah, you included department. an interview with him on NPR where they're, they're kind of grilling him on why he included this detail that somebody had written kill Muslims on the wall of the, the work site. Kill all um, Muslims. And he just said, well, that's what was there, and I reported it. <laughs> you know, This is a, a, an excerpt from that book. The looting was shadowy, widespread, and unsurprising. The Trade Center was known to have been hit before by errant policemen and firemen after the terrorist bombing of 1993. This time, the thievery was less intense but longer lived. It involved small numbers of construction workers and men from the same uniform groups as before, and it was shallow and opportunistic rather than deeply criminal and intense. It started in the shopping complex with the innocuous, the innocuous filching of cigarettes and soda pop and expanded into more ambitious acquisitions. As rumor had it, the tribalism at the site extended even to the choice of goods. Firemen were said to prefer washes from the Tourneau store, policemen to opt for kitchen appliances, and construction workers to enjoy picking through whatever leftovers they came upon. For, in- for instance, wine under the ruins of the Marriott Hotel and cases of contraband cigarettes that spilled from U.S. customs vaults in the building Six Debris. No one, as far as I know, stole women's clothes, which hung on racks for months, or lifted books from the Borders bookstore, which were said to be contaminated with dangerous mold. After a few arrests were made, the filching shifted to the peripheral buildings, which were gradually thinned of computers until authorities wised up and posted guards. It's important to realize that these transgressions occurred not as a normal part of the city, but in a war zone, where standards had changed. Food and supplies were provided free of charge, and a flood of donated goods was believed to be backwashing onto the streets. It was also a place where the entire nation had been attacked and was responding as a collective, and where, therefore, surprisingly for modern America, the meaning of individual property had been diminished. In the context, looting simply did not seem important. I especially like that because it's a little bit sympathetic to them looting. It's like, well, they're in this fucked up disaster zone. It kind of makes sense. They would just take what they want. But it's also uh, later on, there's a, a detail where they, they find a fire truck. Um, I think this was like a, a fire truck that was under the debris. And when they opened it, the, uh, the fire truck was filled with boxes of hot jeans from the gap. Mm. Which, which implies, implies, of course, that even before the towers came down, there were FDNY members who were filling an entire truck with uh, purloined goods, um, obviously trying to get them out of there. And so, of course, the context of all of this is not just for firefighters and for cops, but also for construction workers. There was this huge hagiography at the time, you know, like the every commercial would have a, uh, a cop on it and be like, remember our first responders? And you had this real, like, um, 
national outpouring of, of sympathy, but at the same time, this is happening in the background. And I think that it was maybe too shocking for the mainstream of American society to actually look at this and, and try to understand it. Yeah, there was some very light coverage, you know, in like the time, but it was almost like in passing and you know, kind of advertised it as not credible or at, that uh, sometimes it was there's looting, but it sees people from, out, you know, out, these outside agitators coming in, uh, making fake security passes and stealing stuff. It's like that was the extent of the looting. That's familiar. Yeah. I mean, can you really yeah. get mad at people for looting when they got buried in debris immediately after? Like what, what happened to the people in the fire truck? I think the implications there are pretty dark No. Presumably yeah, some of them made it out, maybe. I, I don't know. That, yeah, those fire trucks, I think many of them are like full of you know, dead <laughs> firefighters. So, I mean, in that sense, like the focus on looting was kind of derided because it's like, yeah, these heroes, you're going you're, you're gonna to trash talk that all these, uh, you know, firefighters who died. But again, you know, never forget, I think, I think this uh, should be included under that. <laughs> Well, it's it's fascinating because obviously the police are there to uh, always to uphold private property, but then this strange like this strange situation arises, this sort of state of exception, and even the private property defenders are kind of seduced by this idea of like picking through the loot and taking things for themselves, things that probably like they would resell or maybe kitchen appliances that they would reuse. But I think it's it's an interesting sociological. Um, kind of uh, insight here into into what happens in disaster areas like this. Even the cops could end up... And to be fair, even the cops. Like, the cops have a long history of breaking the law, don't oh, forget. For sure, for so, sure. it's almost like they don't actually believe in anything, even as they are doing the work of upholding capitalism and white supremacy. That's totally true. In their minds, I suppose they're justifying it um, through this tribalism, because there's this tribalism on this on this death pile, you know, between these three different groups and they're fighting and jockeying with one another in order to get it. And so like, I guess this tribal mentality takes hold and in their minds, I suppose they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. I don't know. I think they just wanted yeah. stuff just like they us. Just wanted they the just stuff don't think like that us. they're, you know, uh, obviously we don't like what they do for a living, but in some ways they're not so different than any other worker. You know, they, they see an opportunity to get some get a new blender for the kitchen and they take it. It's not, I don't think it's the same thing. I'm sorry. I, I have an anti-cop bias. Uh, been doing a lot of abolition episodes in a row. I like my reaction to when the cops do it is very different to when other kinds of workers do it. Even, even the firemen who, you know, don't always come off well in this either. You know, I, I'll leave all the critical theory state of exception stuff to you all. But what made me, what that remind me of the cop looting is just them looting crime scenes all the time, or just they mm -hmm. find a, some money on somebody and just take it, just pocket it. And, uh, you know, firefighters do uh, actually do the same thing at, you know, scenes of fires too. Of course, that's not well documented. I don't know if I could pull out primary sources for that too much, but I mean, it's kind of a, it's a known practice. Yeah, I yeah, mean, how, how many how many people have been raped by a firefighter, though? Probably not as many. Yeah, I guess that's a different metric I'll have to look into. Like, I, I, I'm just many. saying... I, I don't know, they're, they're pretty... I think they're, they're... I don't know. I'm not here to malign firefighters, but uh, I think that's pretty uh, toxic. They're no angels, kind of folks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're no angels. <laughs> I respect them more than the police, for sure, but uh, they're, you know, the firefighters in, in my hometown, at least. Uh, <laughs> well, let's not get into that. <laughs> um, well, I want to, I wanna, like, kind of breeze through the rest of the zine. It's, a, it's really great. It'll be in the show notes. I encourage people to check it out um, because a big part of it is about how the police uh, were able to get rid of the handshoe requirements for non-political surveillance and, uh, you know, spy on... Muslims and trap Muslims uh, in ways that they simply couldn't do before. Um, Wait, you you mean for, so for political surveillance, right? 
Yeah. Because it came out of a lawsuit um, and, and filed this- by the Black Panthers and other activist groups going back to the 70s. It took 14 years mm-hmm. to come to a settlement. Yeah, my history's not too great, but, you know, yeah, 60s, Black Panther stuff. Oh, this seemed a little different. Well, as I understand well, that's it. Why, that's why they were able to get it overturned by a federal court. And, and now like, yeah. they're using the exact same tactics that they used to spy on the Black Panthers to spy on the Black Lives Matter movement and other political groups. It's all come full circle. The, the Hanchu settlement, yeah. as I understand it, as, as it was called, basically barred the NYPD from doing surveillance and taking notes and noting down people and places, as long as there was no commission of a crime. They couldn't like just go around and snoop and take down people's like private information unless there's a crime happening. So on September 12th, 2001, uh, this new guy, Cohen, who had been a CIA guy and now got hired by the NYPD, goes to a judge and he says that these Hanshu um, agreements that said that the NYPD can't do that, that's antiquated now. And because of this terrorist incident, the NYPD needs to be empowered to do things that the FBI itself couldn't even do, which is go in and do mass surveillance, go into mosques, go into businesses, um, and, and go, and go, go to parks where people are playing cricket and note down people's information and basically spy on them 24-7. Yep, they were like, oh, our hands are tied. All these civil liberties are just gonna gonna let terrorists run free and the judge agreed and you imagine this is the new york police department they were accountable only to the city council and the mayor but the city council and the mayor couldn't even see the fucking documents they were basically out there in left field doing what the fbi couldn't and they were spreading their tendrils all over the city like an immense an immense abrogation of uh, civil rights in the city in the years after yeah, and, and the yeah, the significant thing for me definitely was that aspect the, that they suddenly had more power than the FBI to do whatever they wanted. Fucking uh, terrifying! For all, the, all, all these years, the they didn't catch anyone, and the FBI and everyone still hated the NYPD. Yeah, they never <laughs> caught one person. There's an example in uh, in your zine where. Uh, this cop, this detective guy who ended up on this force is trying to find like one incident wherever any, any like terrorism came out of any of this mass surveillance and they couldn't find any. And when one Al Qaeda alleged leader contacted somebody in New York City, it turns out they had no actionable intelligence on that person because they had cast the net so wide. It wasn't even useful like when they could find out that people were communicating with people in New York City. Yeah. And that enemies uh, within book, which, uh, that article, that New York Magazine article that's in the zine is adapted from which, oh shit, is adapted from, um, they actually let, there's an account where the NYPD actually allows a terrorist to come in, you know, through a, a, whatever it is, the Holland Bridge or the Holland Tunnel or whatever, who has like, like bombs in his truck. Like the FBI knows that he has these like big bombs in the trunk of his car and through miscommunication, I don't know, NYPD, Port Authority police jockeying. It's like they actually let they actually let terrorists into the city. Good job. I don't guys. know. I mean, obviously that that was that was thwarted, but yeah, just a huge failure and billions of dollars. Uh and yeah, a decade plus wasted. Yeah, we're all familiar with Edward Snowden and the the revelations about the NSA, but this is happening on the local level. Yeah, and yeah, the local and federal thing, the FBI, there was a document in the zine about how, like the Joint Terrorism Task Force, how the FBI just thought NYPD were just very annoying idiots. Um, There was further stuff that that was not, that did not make into the zine because it was about the FBI, not the cops. The FBI heavily looted the Ground Zero site too, yeah. um, but not like not consumer goods, but like hundreds of tons of uh, you know debris, um, but memorabilia. Like I guess debris that became memorabilia that they would you know like put on their desk or give to their agent friends as gifts or keep in a Gatorade bottle big- under their bed. Exactly. They were just looting <laughs> stuff like that, except they were taking they're taking they're taking like chunks of marble, you know, that were like from the lobby, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, a nice Avertine, uh, Avertine uh, kitchen countertop for me. Nice. 
<laughs> yeah, like in one case, like it, it was like somebody was seeing like 40 pounds of stuff and was like carrying it back to the Midwest to distribute among his buddies over there as little trinkets. Um, but the big, the big case that sort of made the news was uh, an FBI agent in Minnesota, I believe, who uh, pilfered or, uh, uh, a Tiffany Globe that, um, I don't know. There, there, and then it came out, there was actually no Tiffany store inside the World Trade Center. So this Tiffany Globe clearly like, came from you know, some executive's desk. And nice. generally at, at these big terrorism, terrorism sites, you're not supposed to take people's personal effects. Um, but a lot of personal effects were taken. Also, uh, an entire fire truck door. Some, I think some agent actually took just like an entire door from a fire truck and somehow like got that to the Midwest or something. The, the zine wraps up with uh, the continued looting for, for decades to come after 9-11 with NYPD and FDNY pension scams. And so there's a whole section of the zine that's uh, pages from the Daily News and the New York Post and typical typical New York tabloid style. Uh, yeah, that's where you get the title from, New York Worst Responders, 400 million con by cop and fire, uh, 9-11 scam scum, faked illness to steal millions, um, clans in a cop fire disability scheme, so just it seems like maybe hundreds of people who had nothing to do with the first response weren't downtown uh, at all in the recovery efforts, just chalked up their um, supposed mental illness or cancer or, or uh, breathing or respiratory problems and, and collected an early retirement, uh, like very high-paying pensions. And then on, on the Tandazine, you have a really great punchline, which is a study saying that the NYPD had lower cancer rates than the rest of the population. The NYPD who were actually at the site had lower cancer rates. Yeah, that, 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 I slipped that. We, we slipped that in the end because that was a bit more controversial. But yeah, the, those tabloid stories, I mean, those only covered one plot with, with like a specific doctor and lawyer who were colluding. But I mean, it's like that $400 billion scam, but there's been countless, countless other scams on a much lower level. Uh, individual level. I mean, 9-11 related illness, it's a, a contentious point, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, according to that, at least that study, which was commissioned by the NYPD themselves, and they gave all this data to the researchers, you know, who were working for the NYPD, even that research says that, yeah, the cancer rates are actually pretty much lower than general cancer rates. But then it's interesting. Well, it's only interesting to me, but the thrust of that is it's like they, they say, Oh, the cancer rates were lower in cops, but that's because we don't, we're using the wrong data and we should only compare like cop health data to other cop health data or past cop health data, because being a cop is uh, the most unique and hazardous job in existence, mm. and you cannot compare yeah, yeah. cancer rate, right. uh, with cops I, to the general population because they're not the general pop, general population. Right. So, so like, then, wouldn't like, it be yeah. even lower? Then you know what I mean. If yeah, being a cop is is, uh, is like a handicap on your health, which, by the way, it isn't. Uh, we know this. We've debunked this many times over. Uh, My job then, is about 10 ranks up on the list of more dangerous than cops. <laughs> yeah. Then, then wouldn't it be like like the fact that they're lower in absolute terms than the general population? Wouldn't that mean that these cops are just like super healthy? Uh, yeah. Well, basically, the data, the data itself is uh, flawed because there's not enough cancer data for cops uh, before 2005, because that's when all the you know, victim compensation fund and, uh, you know, benefits for 9-11, you know, related illnesses kicked in. So the data, so they, you know, the, the, the data scientists say, oh, you know, one reason that this says that, you know, cops have lower cancer rates is because uh, the cancer, compared to historic cancer rates, um, you know, they're much lower and they went up significantly 
after the government started giving money to people who had 9-11 related cancer. Mm. I don't know. So this, there's all this shit. And of course, the police unions uh, want anything, any illness, health condition suffered while they're a cop, even if they're, you know, on duty or off duty, if they're at home and they get a heart attack, uh, you know, in, you know, while they're sitting at home, that is considered uh, an injury suffered on duty. So they get all the benefits, they get a disability pension. They, you know, it's not like they're running after criminals. They just have like heart disease because they're 60. It's all the donuts. Whatever years old, um, that occurs in the line of duty. So there's a big incentive to make everything 9-11 related. Hmm. I'm sorry, I'm just fascinated staring at this picture of the West Palm Beach home of alleged disability fraudster Glenn Lieberman, an ex-cop with the caption, live in large. It's got palm trees and shit. It's got one of those ugly, like, what do you call that? That bumpy kind of roof. I don't know. It looks like kind of like a Spanish colonial, but like yeah. uglier. You can't make this shit up, folks. Yeah, the, something that didn't make it in there was a later tabloid piece takedown of some cop who was scamming. It was the same kind of scam, scamming a you know disability benefits, and the cover, the cover of it. I think it was the Daily News. It was, it, it said big letters. Uh, no, no. Okay, there was a huge picture of him that took up the entire page of him on a roller coaster, like with his hands up. <laughs> You know, like having a great time. I'm going to Disneyland. And, yeah, and the and the big headline was right and wrong. You know, <laughs> as in right right and wrong. Oh uh, man. Bit of a stretch, but, but I'll take it. I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking cops. Fucking cops. Fucking that's cops. that's kind of like uh maybe should be the title of this episode. Fucking cops. <laughs> after I mean, all yeah. the, the the sucking of cop dick after nine eleven. Turns yeah. out they were, like, worse, worse than we could even imagine. I mean, I knew. Yeah, I knew. maybe I, mean, I look, came into this naively, but, you know. Look, I, did I know it back then yet? I don't know. There is a picture of me that recently has been circulated uh, when I was 11, singing at Governor John Rowland's uh, anti-drugs press conference. And there is a cop playing the guitar, but he knew. You can see the look on his face, as someone on Twitter pointed out. He knew that I, just a few years from then, was going to do drugs and hate cops. So there you go. He knew about 9-11, too. He was the one that told you not to go into the towers those days. Yeah, yeah. He was also Jewish. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like then I read a little bit more and I figured it out. The cops are not part of the working class. Going back to, you know, it's not just some Radlib nonsense. Like they're fucking... They're the violent arm of the state. They're these special bodies of armed men that exist to uh, protect private property. And, you know, in the case of a racialized class system, white supremacy. But you know what? You guys can listen to our recent episode with George Chicarello Mar, or as he's now known, Gio Mar, if you want to learn more about that. I think the other really interesting uh, episode to pair with this is the one that we did with L.A. Podcast about the uh, mm, Los Angeles yeah. Sheriff. Uh, department and the gangs within that and uh, their violence and um, basically their their immunity to any sort of law and order um, and um, yeah I mean the, the the cops as a violent gang is really like I guess an LA thing and also a New York City thing yeah. so yeah. And, it, and it is sorry like it is different when a firefighter does it versus when a cop does it I'm sorry like if your life if your job is to risk your life saving people's lives uh, who cares? You'll skip a little, like you fucking deserve it. Yeah. If your job is to uphold white supremacy, maybe not so much. Yeah, I don't think that any of us, um, certainly not after last summer, are like revolted by the idea of looting in general. But it's like, as usual, it's the fucking hypocrisy of the entire thing, right? Yeah. And all yeah, of the propaganda I, and all of the my... the political ramifications of nine eleven were were like were completely connected to this idea of first responders and and mm-hmm. freedom and liberty and all that. Sorry, Anand, go ahead. My perspective on this is that um, the the police, like like I said, they have a certain role within capitalist reproduction, um, but they aren't necessarily ideologically interested in that role. They're they're ideologically interested in their paycheck, and it doesn't really matter what they think about white supremacy or about private property 
who are about the protest they're policing. Uh, they're supposed to do their job. Um, and the fact that they really have this, I don't think it's just New York or LA at all. I think it's uh, law enforcement in general in the United States. Um, they have this deep disdain for the law because it limits what they can do and they constantly break it and they constantly uh, extort and have their own rackets. Um, that just demonstrates uh, that the way that we think of them as this unique barrier uh, between uh, like the, this like embodiment of law and order isn't, isn't quite accurate. Um, that these are people who, uh, you know, they might indeed be particularly bad people, like the people in high school who were bullies and stupid or whatever. But that's kind of besides the point. The point is that they, they have a job and they do it or don't do it to a certain extent. And it's very interesting to see the, the times when they um, openly revolt against their job. And often it's, it's quite reactionary, of course. Um, but it kind of uh, it deflates this fantasy of them as being like the white supremacist force in the country. I don't think that's true. Well, it's a contradiction, right? Because in order to have them serve that function of enforcing uh, private property relations and of enforcing white supremacy, which I do think is a rather unique position that they occupy in capitalist society, um, they have to have a certain amount of power and autonomy. And, you know, we were just going over this in, uh, in, in Lenin, in State and Revolution. Um, what happens is these, uh, these special bodies of armed men tend to grow in power and even even beyond that of the state, which, as we know, uh, the state doesn't really exist apart from society. We only think that it's above it. Right. And I think this is true uh, very much so of the NYPD, which has always had a, a kind of autonomy that's unique in the United States, um, at least according to Christian Williams and Our, Enemy in, and Our Enemies in Blue, which is a really good book. Um, however, I think it's... You know, this is also something that's true of like a mafia uh, or a street gang or something. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think you can maybe understand these actions better through that lens, through a parastate formation or a organized crime formation, than you can as saying that this is a particular way that law and order expresses itself is through looting and debauchery. I mean, it's always both. But uh, we can talk more about that, I don't know, <laughs> later. <laughs> Further episodes. Like, they're a crime gang that also upholds the system in a really contradictory and weird way that's interesting to think about. But their job, you keep saying they got to do their jobs. Their job is not what most people think it is. Well, we got a lot you of know, think their, their, think their, their job, job is to loot. Th their job That's is not, not what job. they think it is. Um, no, I, I mean, I guess this is like a particularly uh, insane example where the it, things really come apart. Like what? Because because we like looting in general. Right. We're generally interested in it. Uh, sometimes it creates openings for new kinds of relating within, uh, you know, a, it's like a little bubble outside of capitalism but is there anything that can be recuperated from this kind of looting no i don't think so yeah it's like looting from above i don't know yeah. it's like civil like asset forfeiture civil forfeiture is is that looting i don't know you guys you guys are the labor experts here but <laughs> um i the the tricky point with the, the police union stuff is that they throw their lot or a lot uh, a lot of other municipal unions throw their lot in with the police unions um, I just probably because they have so much power yeah. and yeah very, rec very recently like the MTA was you know transit workers union uh, totally um, yeah uh, linked up with the uh, PBA the officers union here and they were doing press conferences together about how they need more cops in the subway to protect the conductors and all that. And they actually call, <laughs> there's actually a press conference where the, the leader of the TW uh, local 100, you know, which is, used to be one of the most significant 
an erratic or I don't know, pretty further left unions, municipal unions here were calling the PBA people like their con their comrades, like oh, they actually God. use the word their comrades. So I don't know. It's like this municipal, this whole municipal union thing. It's complex because you, you, it's like these state laws where you want the the PBA to lose. I, I mean, some of that stuff actually does affect these more legitimate uh, municipal unions with with a lot of power that I assume we all kind of sympathize with a little bit. Yeah. Like, yes. when, like when the, when, when, like a transit strike, obviously that's a, that's important. It's more important than the blue flu, but still the, when the, when state law ben, uh, benefits police officers unions, it also tends to benefit transit workers, uh, teachers even, I don't know. That's such a fucking problem. We talked. There's a chapter on this in George's book as well that I liked about uh, the contradictions of um, yeah. On the one hand, organized labor is on its back; they need as much power as they can get. But I think working with the cops is always going to be a devil's bargain for workers, well, and, and one that does that's not that's work not out the, in their favor. That's not what the leaders think, and they keep reelecting. Uh, these terrible TWU Local 100, which I think was, uh, well, my memory is, is not that great, but I, their, tran their very brief transit strike where their old uh, leader, Toussaint, Roger Toussaint, mm -hmm. was thrown in jail for striking because, of course, striking is illegal in New York State. Um, he got voted out, and we got this Samuelson guy mm -hmm. As a leader, he keeps getting reelected, and he's the he's the guy on TV calling, you know, the PBA, you know, his brothers, his comrades. So I don't oh, know. Yeah. The radical union leader kind of failed. He did this huge strike, which you know was a big deal for the labor movement and everyone here. Uh, but he failed, was thrown in prison, and then voted out. And now they've got this. The, everyone's voted. Yeah for this terrible, this terrible slate. Um, yeah. I mean, you could take that as a left critique of traditional unionism as a route to working class power, well, or the, you could take it as, well, you know what he tried and maybe, maybe someday they'll try again. I mean, TWU local 100 started as a communist union. Mike Quill, who organized them, uh, was a communist, was a rank-and-file communist, and actually remained, I think, after T Taft-Hartley for some time. But, of course, the social conditions now for an uh, industrial union of subway workers are different than they were, you know, 80, 90 years ago. And so even Toussaint, the story of that strike is a little bit more complicated because he took this radical action, seeming action, of um, getting a strike vote uh, uh, by the rank and file and doing an illegal strike, and he ends up in prison for a couple of days. But if you listen to some of the radicals, like the Maoists and the Trots and others, uh, within the TWU, he actually capitulated far too early. They think he should have stayed out on strike for a couple more days. And so, like, there were left people pushing him through. The, the story is very, very complicated. But I think, you know, it's not surprising that Samuelson, who's just a pure bureaucrat uh, would be cozying up with the PBA because they see like a material interest there. They're fighting around a budget and they're actually a lot, there's a lot of overlap between transit workers and cops. You know, they're often working side by side because of how the subway is policed in this country. So without like a rank and file pushback to that, without, you know, BLM kind of uh, entering the rank and file in, in that situation, um, it's going to be tough to imagine that the, the, the TWU can make a radical break from like standard municipal union politics in the city. I distinctly remember uh, last year during the George Floyd uh, uprising, uh, <laughs> a, a TWU worker on a, on a public bus refusing to transport prisoners. Yeah. And I also remember them doing that during Occupy. Me too, me too. And that was a big deal. That was a, that was a big Twitter moment. Everyone was it was really uh, happy over that. But of course, it's fleeting. Uh, this, I don't know. There, there was, that, was, that was like that was like the one that was the one trot 
<laughs> no, I think that I think that that largely within the rank of fox, it also happened. Um, the sanitation workers, the cops were trying to get sanitation workers to come and throw out all the stuff from Occupy, and the trans the sanitation workers kept refusing and refusing until they find found some scabs to pay triple time to do it. So I think that there's like rank and file sentiment on the one hand, which is largely, I think, in line with these things, but that translation up the union bureaucracy and that translation to things like contract negotiations, it's its not, there, there doesn't seem to be a, a transmission belt there at this point in terms of policy, because I think that the municipal unions, including the PBA, are still handcuffed by the fact that, um, you know, there's a, a city budget that they want to be included in, and they, and they have to, like, push as hard as they can alongside the other unions. And this is why we were trying to elect a socialist city council. Did we succeed? Not yet. But it, it's, it's good to see that there are things we can do to reduce the power of the cops on the local level. Because that's where, that's where most of us are operating. That's where we live. You know, we can have a, a local, uh, we can have a big impact um, doing local shit. Indeed. Um, to a certain Nan, extent. You, yeah, I want to ask uh, uh, what, what you think we could do about the cops. Uh, well, I mean, the most immediate whatever harm reduction, I don't know if I use that word correctly, is uh, elect, the election of uh, these more progressive DAs. Like, like if you want, in terms of like instant, uh, I guess, uh, certain change that keeps people, you know, out of, out of jail, out of prison, that's the first thing. But so much stuff um, with the police, it's at the state level and organizing, you know, for like state assembly, state senator uh, elections across across the entire state of New York, you know, which is huge. I don't know. That's it's like it's depressing, a bit pessimistic. Well, we got we got a few in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and these city council races, like clearly they, they're very gratifying. Um, but uh, the stuff that goes on in Albany, you know, like even I don't follow it that much. But the when when I research personally, when I research the police, it all goes back to state law. That's where all the protections come from. It's all state. It's all it was all done at the state level. So that's that's interesting. So a lot of the budgeting happens at the city level but the laws are at the state level that seems like it makes it a lot harder for us to we we need a multi-pronged attack is what you're saying yeah and like the most the best opportunity for the city to reduce a budget to make budgetary changes to the nypd was last year with the you know what was it was weeks after the riots that that was like the, the clearly the best opportunity to do that, and they couldn't even get that done. Research and Destroy's line is uh, the same as it was on 9-11. Vote early, vote often. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Thank you, Anand, for being with us. This was really fascinating stuff. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right, so if we have wrapped up the first part of our discussion, uh, I guess we're going to, you know, take a little bathroom break, get comfy, and then we'll meet y'all behind the paywall when we're going to talk about some of the cultural changes that happened in New York City and America after 9-11, um, particularly through the lens of, of a band known as The Strokes. New so. York City cops, New York City cops, New okay. York City cops, they ain't so smart. 